I'm Andy. And I'm Lev. And you're listening to Snakes in the Garden. I think it's interesting, Lev, that before we started recording, we're kicking around what we're going to read. And we have a beautiful tradition of reading something before getting started. We were looking at the serenity prayer and the version that's used in 12-step recovery is the first paragraph. It's actually a longer prayer. It's been adapted from the original language. And we were just reviewing all the changes uh, some of the that changes. people over time have made. Yeah. I'll read the full version as it is currently kicked about in the recovery space. The original language by Ronald Niebuhr is a, not a complete departure, but a slight departure from how it's currently articulated. And then I want to describe the observation we just we just made, <laughs> because I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. And so which version are you reading? Again? I'm going to read what's known as the full version, and this is the version that's used in 12-step recovery. Okay. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. And you read it. I would would love to be reasonably happy in this life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we made a, for me, an astonishing observation. Can you read the version that you just read to me? I can. Yeah. This is what I turned up with a cursory Google. I just searched serenity prayer full and this is from the cincinnati children's hospital uh, for context uh, which may explain some of the omissions but this new version reads god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference living one day at a time enjoying one moment at a time Taking this world as it is and not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. What was your observation? You noticed, couple, I noticed a cu- couple things missing. A cu- yeah. couple of observations the second time around. First, a fundamental line was omitted. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace has been taken out. Just sliced, um, brutalized. Yeah. Um, and then you read a, the, the pronouns, he were have been changed to you, which yeah. I think right now in, in today's culture and, and world, I think developing spirituality and making that as friendly for all people as possible by simplifying contentious topics, as simple as that. Oh, that's a uh, fun analysis. See, I didn't read it that way. I didn't imagine that they might have changed God's pronouns from he due to some <laughs> like recent socio-political upheaval dealing with gender. I just read it as 
if I'm praying, I'm not talking about God in the third person. I'm not praying to someone else that God might help me do so. And so I'm saying like, yo, dude, you are the bringer of yeah. light. Bestow that shit upon me post haze. Right. That's, right. that's how I read that. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. And I agree with you. I'm just simply stating that in its original authorship, it was pronounced and someone made the decision to change that to you. Someone did. And that's that's funny because <laughs> it's funny for so many reasons. I mean, yeah, I was raised in a very, very loose religious tradition and I don't really follow a religious tradition. Currently, yeah. I follow a more spiritual one. And I think anyone might anyone thinking clearly might have some reasonable critique of any religious tradition. I think that. Right? But that's that's something that happens. And if I had to critique anything about Christianity, it wouldn't necessarily be that they gendered God. Right. Right. <laughs> there, there's but, so many other problems that that probably would not have been the hill that I died on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in 12-step recovery rooms, it is a hot topic. And is people okay. will pe- people will, in the rooms of AA, where there is a rich tradition of not changing anything <laughs> because quite frankly with people who find AA a home uh, like I can when I need to can I can feel very at home in AA Al- alcoholism and alcoholics have a long-standing history of changing things to make it work for them <laughs> and then things don't work out so mm. one of the fundamental principles by the old timers in AA is, yeah, this is the book that we read. We don't change it. These are the prayers that we say. We don't change it. And that that's just my opinion of it. And I think it's shared. But there are other 12-step recovery environments where that tradition is not as uh, shared. And people will start the serenity prayer, you know, because the first word in the serenity prayer is God. Mm-hmm. Grant me the serenity. You'll hear God, goddess universe you'll hear all these words spoken at the same time before the prayer the rest of the prayer starts Mm -hmm. and uh, that was my association to the changing of the pronoun to make it friendly for all of the people who deliberately already start the prayer differently (laughs) and i can see i can see the wisdom in uh just being firm about not changing anything i think there's absolutely wisdom there I also see the wisdom and flexibility. I'm very much a, a take what works for you and leave the rest kind of person. Right. I know that a lot of folks find it challenging to engage with the alcoholics or other anonymous programs because of the religiously coded language that doesn't speak to them. And there's a challenge there about m- most of it is concerned with the acknowledgement and the embracing of a higher power at yeah. the very minimum a higher power and even the notion of any higher power can be grating just reflexively terrible to me oh, like yeah. i could imagine someone saying may i be granted the serenity just totally taking the other right out of it's the a, system. like it's a it's a total yeah it's a different ask different expression of asking yeah or even you know? may i may i have may i find 
which makes it not just may I be granted someone out there is still yeah. granting it to me, but Make may me... I find the serenity? It's now it's my problem. <laughs> well, you you wouldn't be the person to remove accepting hardship as the pathway to peace then, but someone did. Someone didn't someone like did. that. And I think it's interesting. I mean, for me, Lev, I'll be 54 years old very soon. You are a baby. And, and, yeah. A child and so, of this universe. And so many things have changed just in the last 10 years, let alone 20. And it's like Tony Blower says, whenever people who are victims of violence uh, are interviewed, almost all of them had an intuition right before it happened. They felt something. Something bad was about to happen. They felt something, that intuition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have an intuition that has developed, and I can't say if it's intuition. I have an awareness that's developed in our changing culture of things that now almost appear toxic and taboo that at one time were not. Like the proposition of removing a line from a prayer that's been around since the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. was like unpalatable 20 years ago like there's no you would think that that was you know uh, the canon of recovering from alcoholism you know a piece of canonical material ronald niebuhr's prayer and we already sure. know it's been adapted from its original language but then it was left alone in other words like the canonical council on this prayer got together decided what its final version would be for the tradition of aa and then mm-hmm. walked away and said it is done and never changed it. And now, you know, I think I think in today's world we have a freedom of fucking with things that we normally never previously did. And I I don't know how to appraise that. I just know that it doesn't feel good in my gut mm. that if we're trying to change a principle as fundamental as that, where is the belief anchored? that the pathway to peace is not laden with hardship. Sure, sure. No, I see that. I There's two things in that that are really interesting to me. And one is just this notion of, I guess I would call it the sanctity of something. Oh, yeah. The, the idea that it's it's made and here it is and now it's perfect and don't fuck with it. Maybe go make something else if you need to but do not change the thing that is here that has so been written. And then there's also the, the line of reasoning that might cause someone to change that particular element. Um, I guess I'll address the second first, because I'm curious. I noticed after pulling this quote back up that it was from that this version was offered by the Cincinnati children's hospital. I, I wonder if that context is meaningful. If the editors for this website or the administrators or you know, doctors or pastors or whomever working for this organization are responsible for it. And I don't know that they are. I could imagine someone having an experience of their young child being in serious, seriously unwell. Yeah. Or maybe even about to die that a notion of hardship being the path to peace might be more than just a little bit unpalatable that might not bring someone what they need in that particular moment in their life. However true it may be. Yes. However I, true it may be. Right. I, so I could see that being a rationale. Um, 
but I could be wrong. And then there's also the notion of are things sacred and unfuckwithable or are things malleable and we gain benefit from toying with them? And I, I think to me, I find holding, especially words, language, quotes, philosophical or spiritual ideas in themselves as sacred and inalienable, if you will, is a very Western tradition. Mm. Because it brings to mind Judaism, which has a rich history of debate, of questioning one another and even questioning God himself. Think of the Muslim religion, which also has a deep history of of debate and of the value of multiple interpretations. Uh, and I'm sure there are many, many other examples. And I'm not trying to posit any one of them as more correct or more worthy than another. Just, just identifying that, like, we wrote this, and now it's sacred, don't mess with it, feels very Western to me. Like, I, I even use the word inalienable, which nobody says in the common parlance, where do we find the word inalienable? The Constitution, a document that was created and laid down by a bunch of people, and now they're like, here you go, these are your rights, don't fuck with them, this is the best it could possibly be, now you have to build your whole civilization based on it. <laughs> You know, it's funny um, what I for me, what what the interesting question is, what motivates someone to consider changing it or to object so much that something must be changed? Like we're talking about you, you raised a very uh, timely topic that's occurring in our information streams right now. There's a lot of challenge to the, the, the formative documents of. Uh, the civilization on which our Western society is based here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I want, I, and I'm aware of, in a general sense, the social issues that that interest is expressing itself, the interest to change things. Mm -hmm. If you went right now to the uh, American Psychological Association and tried to assess what is the level of energy to change all of Freud's or Jung's writings? You probably wouldn't see it. In other words, um, th there are some areas where that initiative or, or force doesn't seem to exist. If you went into the fire service right now, unless someone were producing data about how we can improve firefighter survivability mm -hmm. by changing a stupid old practice, you wouldn't see initiative to change. I wonder what drives people to the lengths that they will go mm. to change things that impact societies, communities, whole groups of people. Mm. And how often are those people living a life that, that embodies order and peace and serenity. Hmm. You know, I think one of the criticisms that exist right now with all of these disputes going on about changing things that impact groups of people is that many of the people who are critical have lives that lives that are just train wrecks. You know, like they're in court or in the media engaging in behavior that is hijacking limbic system is uh, you know, overtly over the top and 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 grandiose and 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 are there are there personal lives in the individual level in order 
And is that prerequisite to having eligibility to go out and want to change the world? It's a lot there, Andy. It's yeah. a lot there. Yeah. I mean, you know? I've been to the the APA sessions, the meetings, the conf- the conference. And I imagine what prevents people from saying we are going to change all of the writings of this, uh, this, you know, whoever you want to call this, this figure in history that came, you know, that through their own labor and intelligence and research developed all these doctrines is that there is a, an outlet for that, right? Like if you think about Freud or Jung, like Jung studied in Freud's tradition identified elements from Freud's work that resonated with him and looked at the stuff that he was critical of and said, well, I'm going to offer another um, possibility that's based on this, but that allows my own critique and my own beliefs to emerge within it. And so you have this kind of network of, well, this person started it and this person went here with it and this person went here with it. And based on this person, these other people in this kind of tree all took elements from these ideas and ran with it to develop new things. So you don't need to change the original work because you're encouraged to develop your own approach to it. That's how We're on to something though. So there's a whole group of Jungian psychologists. Absolutely. Pe- and there's people-, people who are like, Jung is a fucking idiot. Here's what's good about Jung, but I'm going to go over here with right. it. But, but here's my point. Within the Jungian tradition, what if one person said, you know, I'm in this organization of, of Jungian psychologists. Our approach to providing care and services to people is anchored in this body of work, but I'm having mm-hmm. trouble with this particular thing. And mm-hmm. in my personal practice, I don't really talk about that, but you know what? I want to change it within mm-hmm. our group of Jungian um, psychological work and and and... And that 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 change, there's an appeal for that change. The change is met with, I'm sure, resistance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and how is that? How does why does that phenomenon matter? Why is it important? Does it test the longevity, the strength of things, the meaningfulness of things? Is there a difference if someone wants to change it when their life is in order compared to you know? a radical belief that it needs to be changed for reasons that just, you know, almost unanimously are, are not shared and what kind of space. Have you ever in your life, in your memory said something along the lines of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, for me, when I say that it's because I thoroughly believe it. I don't say that statement casually. No, no. I, I, and I hear from your language that you believe that, that you don't say that casually. You are an if it ain't broke, don't fix it person. I Dead can be. Heart. You can I, be. I, I, I think so. I, I, I would agree with that appraisal because if I'm, for me, if I'm saying that, it's because I've tested this myself for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, for instance, let, let's talk about bows and arrows for a minute. Okay, I come, right. I, co- I come from a school of training with bows and arrows, where we have a very specific learning method. We don't engage in the physical characteristics of shooting a bow shot and learning how to do that 
on a target face so we can measure where the arrow went. We do it. We still shoot arrows, but the reason that we shoot arrows is because the bows break if you, if you quote-unquote dry fire the bow and arrow set. If you shoot a bow over and over again without an arrow in it, unless the bow is built to sustain the forces of that. Sure, the there bow, needs to be somewhere for that energy to go. And if it doesn't get released into the air, it gets released into the structure of the bow. I'm, I'm following. I know The physics. South Korean <laughs> Olympic coach years ago had bows built that could be used that way without mm-hmm. an arrow. And the Olympic team, the South Korean coach was coaching, dominated while he was coaching. So mm. how to do it and being free from the vanity of where the arrows go is the training method for the physical and into the mental guidance concern with where the arrow goes is a different learning discipline that's generally very very quick to acquire in archery training okay it's it's calibration and keeping things calibrated until this athletic effort that you're engaging in in the physical is done and the arrow is off the bow and can't be influenced by the bow or you anymore. Mm-hmm. So learning how to how to calibrate a bow and arrow set to deliver an arrow to a particular spot is pretty easy. It's all of the other characteristics, posture, grip placement, finger placement, anchors, balancing tension flows, executing without loss, um, and and following through to an ending of the shot process that takes longer to get to than the hour to, to get off the bow. The training approach for bow shots for me is one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This method has produced so many champions. It's reliable. I'm not going to get in there and try to insert my own ideas now, if someone does try to get in there and insert their own ideas, are they doing that as someone who thoroughly understands the method and they have something that they want to try? Or are they just making an appraisal because they've gotten to championship levels by a different method and they just say that's stupid? I don't, I can't say that I find anything wrong with either approach. I mean, aren't a lot of incredible theories in athletics and psychology in politics don't those come from someone kind of just sitting on their couch making a hypothesis looking at something and being like ah something about this isn't right i think we can do it better and as you're saying what what bears the test of any theory is the results that it produces but at the beginning of any theory you may not have any results to offer you're saying i want to try this I think this will work. Or at the bare minimum, you're saying maybe the theory that's in existence right now isn't producing as many champions as it could or the right kind of champions or how we define championship is inherently flawed. My only feedback to that observation is I'm not rendering opinions on how rocket science should change. Like I'm not the guy you want working at SpaceX trying to come up with ideas I I think there is consistency in that the idea is coming from a person who's in the space, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think that's one criteria. It, you know, these kinds of ideas are, are people who are in the space. 
And sure. right now, we're seeing a lot of people dispensing change opinion who are not in the space. A lot of people getting into appraisals on, for instance, how first responders manage their fear when we think about all of these tragedies that are happening with school shooting and school murder. A lot of a tremendous appraisal about and anger about how people are are managing their fear when they have no experience being under those kinds of conditions. And is is having experience under those kinds of conditions prerequisite to eligibility for an opinion? And are their lives in order? Like, I, I don't know. And yeah. we're grappling today, I think, with a tremendous amount of practice change in how we evaluate opinion. Mm. We seem, I don't know if it's because of the internet uh, or the algorithms and the devices and the social networking, but I have an awareness of difference now, an awareness of difference within people expressed in, in the, you know, the uh, social media world. I have an awareness of that now that I've never experienced with most of my life interpersonally mm -hmm. with other people. I've never experienced the amount of difference within my community locally or, or, or personal interpersonal networks where I'm going eyeball to eyeball with people. The amount of difference I see today is in the social setting online is, is vast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I definitely empathize and agree with this notion of someone who is not an expert coming into a field and, and making these grand opinions about how it should be changed. I'm sure everyone has had the experience of some idiot coming into their workplace and telling them how they should do their job when they've never done the job and don't have, yeah. you know, everyone has had that experience and it inevitably wrangles. <laughs> um, certainly, talk shows. Like, oh, think I don't of talk watch those. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't like those. <laughs> those yeah. And, you know, there's this idea of what is a prerequisite to having an opinion. I certainly don't want to live in a dystopian future where there are a number of qualifiers that I must meet before before generating an opinion, before opining, either personally or to the public. Um, right. Which is the whole basis <laughs> of the freedom of speech, you know, opining. Yeah, just just let me opine. Like nothing's gonna happen. Yeah, if I, opine. I have a right to opine. I have. Okay, a, let yeah. me opine. I have yeah. my lectern. I have my soapbox. Like yeah. I, <laughs> I yeah. brought everything and, I need to. And opine. And the internet has enabled that, where everybody is opining, all the time. Us, us included. <laughs> you know, we're opining right now. And, you know, we're, it, we're it, inflicting it, our opining upon the public at large. I, I think we're at least trying to act responsibly, though, in what we're opining about. You and I are not in here opining about things that we don't have deep familiarity and experience with, at least in oh, my opinion. Oh, yeah, speak for yourself. I opine constantly about things that I don't know about. But uh, I would argue... <laughs> I don't see you. Do, I'm when sorry you do to that, tell you I'm this. not around. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, when I do it, you're just not aware. <laughs> right. Great. But I, the, the, <laughs> I think there's something important in that, though. I, for example, am not a fireman. I, for example, am not a rocket scientist. I am not an architect. I do not hold the experience and wisdom that comes with many positions. I do hold a level of respect to the experience and wisdom that comes from those positions. And I am also not 
nobody. I don't think it's like bald faced arrogance that I might have a reasonable critique of how a fireman does his job. I don't think that it's bald faced arrogance that I might have a reasonable critique about architecture, science, or psychology. And v- yes, sure, I think to have an informed opinion, it, it's nice to have to have education about what you're talking about. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that my personal history and differing experiences wouldn't necessarily bring value to the thing. Fair enough. Upon which I'm making commentary. Is that, yeah, that's, that's the. I, 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 I think that's, I think that's a, a wonderfully responsible way to articulate what we're trying to describe here where I think it becomes problematic is if your criticism of the firefighter suddenly begins resulting in how the firefighter has to change how they do their business in a way that is um, forced upon them. If it's not a beneficiary, if your opinion is not a beneficiary of analysis, appraisal, testing, and to the extent that its opining exists and applies pressure to a public safety agency to consider changing practice because a bunch of people rendered this opinion. I've seen that kind of phenomena occur in, in state government, frankly, um, and where, where public opinion will shape practice. I should hope so. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to opine, it's another to change. Opining leading to change. Opining leading to structural change. Systemic change. Yeah, yeah. Um, Here's the, the piece of the serenity prayer. Another difference in those two readings. You read me one that included the phrase. One of them, one of them said, the courage to change the things I can, which I am most familiar with. And one of the ones that you read said, the courage to change the things I should. And I think there's a huge, a huge pivot point. There. Oh, yeah. In in the original full version, courage to change the things which should be changed. Yeah. Wow. Let's, that's, we could have hours of discussion based on just this idea of what. What's the criteria for that? Yeah. <laughs> should. Like, that's a word that's so loaded that I've done my absolute best to remove it from my vernacular altogether. Me too. Me too. The, the things that should be changed, right? So if I'm opining and a bunch of people are opining around me and they share my opinion and that leads to public policy change, there is some virtue in that in that we are demonstrating the courage to change the things that we can Clearly, we can change it. We changed it, right? right? There's there's virtue in that. It sounds like you are almost inviting more people to examine whether the things that can be changed should be changed. And I imagine that most people would argue if they're changing things, it's because they believe it should be changed. Yeah, and I like, think can and should are two different totally are two different motivations. Different, and yeah. you know, there's a. God, there's this idea of like, should the firefighters be the only people who can decide what should be changed about firefighting? Should the architects be the only people that can decide what should be changed about architecture? Great question. Um, I see you, at least in this moment, as a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it person. Mm. 
I am not an if it ain't broke, don't fix it person. That's one of the reasons we're friends. <laughs> it is. I, I, yeah, I, 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 uh, I'd have to say that my, I'd probably agree with the appraisal that that is a, that is a, a first principle in my being. If it's functioning, it's trustworthy until such, until there's indication that there's need to change it, leave it. When I was pretty young, I was, I really liked like books of quotes. Um, I read the Reader's Digest. I liked books of jokes. I like books of, you know, distilled pithy little bits of wisdom. Um, you know, just the, the sitting in the sitting in the airport self-help books kind of deal. I really liked all of those. And there was one that I was given under the guise of like, it was a book of, of life advice, sort of, from people who worked in different disciplines. So there was quote unquote life advice from plumbers, from fishermen, from doctors, from all these different people. And I loved... I loved all the wisdom from the carpenters. That was my favorite part of this book. Mm. And there was a quote that stayed with me for, at this point, at least 15 years, which was, if it jams, force it. If it breaks, it needed replacing anyway. That is one of my core tenets. If I nudge at something and it sticks or just isn't working a little tiny bit, if there's even the slightest thing wrong with it, I will immediately try to break this item. And if it breaks under me engaging in this, then well, clearly it needed to be replaced because it wasn't working perfectly anyway. I apply this to relationships a lot. This is You, you can create a grand psychological profile rife with critique about how I apply this principle in too many different ways. Um, but I think it has utility. Like the way that I see it, no, I'm not a carpenter. I'm not an architect. I'm not a construction worker. Yet I am the person who lives in a house, who opens their cupboards, who drives around the city, who needs to enter buildings through the parkway. Like I am the intended audience for these structures, which gives me, in my opinion, the right to say, hey, this isn't working. Like your door is sticking. Do I know everything about how to fix this door? No, but I'm gonna try to shove this door open because it was clearly designed for me to get into. And if your door breaks, that's not a user problem, that's a designer problem. That needs to be fixed. And I can see how people are applying that to our structures and systems. Yes, I am I, the beneficiary of how the fire department works. Am I a firefighter? No. Am I a person who's going to call the fire department if there's a fire? Yes. If I call the fire department when there's a fire, and in my opinion, they royally fuck things up. Okay. Yeah, that, you're you going to have an opinion have, about that. I'm going to have an opinion <laughs> about it. And if I publicly opine about how they royally fucked this up and enough people agree with me that this changes the structure of firefighting, golly, I really don't see how that's my problem. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think there are absolutely times and conditions where that approach is reasonable, completely reasonable. Yeah, I, I like, there's another quote that I like that's, if it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. By the truth, but look at by the, the qualification. But is, yeah, what is the truth? Okay, yes, right. what is the truth? Yet I wonder, like, 
and a lot of what we're talking about, I understand we're alluding to, like you already referenced the school shooting, the police force. Like I know, I know what we're digging at, but not really entirely talking. Well, it's about not here. just that, but I think that it's it's current. I think this this phenomenon is very that. current, right. and it's very current now. Do I have an opinion about what rocket scientists are doing? No, because by and large, they don't affect my day-to-day life. But if we start talking about the police department, the fire department, the, the city who is tasked with fixing the roads, all these things that are under the, the framework of public service, those are pub- two words. There's a service and I am the public. You qualified it as as it, it, that framework invites opining. It and sure I, does. <laughs> and I think the process of inviting opining is important. Invitation to opine is important. If the invitation is there, it must be considered. It's when the opinion, when the change is merely occurring as a function of presence of opinion rather than analysis and evaluation of opinion that I begin to pay attention because an, op- an opinion, look, I loved this statement when I heard it uh-huh. and it means a lot to me. It's, it sums it up. Okay. There ideally is an elitism of ideas and an egalitarianism of people. We have it reversed that people are different and ideas are the same. And when we all get into a relativism or a, or a flattening of the value of ideas, I think we have problems because then everyone's truth then becomes relative. What is truth that stands beyond opining? I'll, I'll, be, I'll be bold enough to say it. There, there are a group of people who absolutely contest that the earth is flat. And there are a lot of people that don't listen to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they have a right to their opinion. That doesn't mean we're going to start engineering the ways that airplanes navigate the earth and the way that satellites will, will move around to provide service to the globe because these people think the earth is flat. The invitation to opine is necessary space to be held is necessary because a substantial group of people think that the earth is flat think that doesn't mean that we're going to start implementing systemic change to um, a spherical earth and how certain systems serve it does you know what i mean Flat earthers, do you think, are in our listener base? Because we may just in, have in alienated our list- all of them. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just you kidding. Know. I'm kidding. <laughs> right, right. So this is my comic relief here. I'm, I'm going. Yeah. Uh, well, in our listener base, probably not too many. But you know, who knows? We may start getting our first hate mails after I've after this waiting. episode. I've been <laughs> waiting. I really like hate mail. I don't. Um, <sighs> hey, I need to take a short break. I have a an extremely timely phone call from a marina coming in. I want to make sure my boat isn't sinking in Tacoma. Yes, I too want to make sure your boat is not sinking in Tacoma. Okay. Go forth. Thanks. Welcome back, Andy. Hey, (laughs) did you hear all of that? Uh, I heard bits and pieces. Okay. (laughs) How's your boat? Everything's in order. Um, 
you know, just sad to see it go. That's all. Uh, and uh, and all of the conditions that preceded it. But it is what it is. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's <sighs> talk about transmuting. Let's talk about navigating all of this stuff. Yes. Yeah, let's. On the couch next to the person who says that it is an indignity um, or a profanity to change what has been written. There's the person next to them who's like, well, I kind of think it's a profanity to assume that you could have written something that would apply to everyone and call it good. Mm. Um, there is someone who critiques the arrogance of Reynold Niebuhr and says, well, that's what you came up with. And now we have to go with that. I don't know. I think we can make it better. There's a, a group of people who are kind of quirking one well-shaped eyebrow with the founding fathers and say, ah, I don't know. I don't think you did. I think it could be better. Like, I think it's kind of arrogant to assume that this is the best thing possible. Those those people are sitting on the couch next to each other, as we should be, having a, a nice proper debate. And I I really resonate with a lot of the things you've said about how important it is to have some understanding of what you are actually critiquing before your critique is considered to be valid. That is very, very real. I would hope that the structures, especially ones concerning public policy and public service, would have a built-in way of assessing this before they make change. I think that that's a lovely appraisal. Of, right. That uh, they would uh, not be so fragile that they would be swayed by any passing opinion, but that they would have a meaningful way of consistently assessing and integrating other wisdom as it emerges. And I think one of the challenges that I see is that a lot of people critiquing these systems, yes, of course, do not have the background in history to truly understand how they function. But I think there's the other piece that they're offering critique that's misaligned with the end goal of these structures. So you aren't just getting people who say, well, wow, rocket science would be a lot better if they did this. And here's what I'm offering to make it better, whether or not that's wrong or right or true or false. They're saying, I don't think that we should have rocket scientists at all. Their critique is directly opposed to the end goal of the inherent structure. That, and that happens all the time. It's like, what, what? these are two different debates. Why do we continue to smash them together at, at to this totally. moment in time? And I agree with that. Uh, observation. I think that's happening a lot. I think a, a place that all human beings can start in grappling with difference and in experiencing and navigating, I think this very interesting time we're living in where there seems to be an enormous pressure to transform and transmute ways of doing things is the consideration being made from a place of serenity? We started this podcast mm. talking about serenity. Or is is your experience of someone else someone else's opinion triggering? And is the person who's rendering the opinion triggered or are they rendering it from a place of serenity? 
And I think the filter for all of that is individual shadow work, frankly. I think if if I can hear an opposing opinion without feeling personally threatened, insignificant, ashamed, angry, disgusted, if I can experience an opinion that I don't agree with as a non-significantly arousing event. First of all, I think it's a place that everybody wishes they could be, or at least the people that I know. If I could hear, let's say, let's, let's say pronouns and misgendering are my thing. Let's just say they're my thing. And I'm getting misgendered. Can I engage in debate from an emotionally regulated state about it? I've seen people do that with tremendous grace. And one of the reasons that I have become so willing to integrate new language and new points of view in that space, for example, is because you, Lev, have treated me with such grace and non-triggered response to old patterns of speaking and thinking. And your influence on me has been more from how you have done it than what you have said. And when I use that prototype for people to share space with differing opinion, to me, I think the lowest hanging fruit is everyone's individual responsibility to be self-regulated in the face of opposing opinion. Except that's not what sells in a free market. What sells in a free market is, I'll I'll share this. I recently learned this. I'm not going to identify people. Okay, Um, I'm listening. There's a very well-known figure in the commercial negotiation space. Very well-known figure. There's a very well-known, extremely globally known, television talk show host and network who wanted to work with this person in the negotiation space to create their own program. Okay. And in the commercial negotiation space, we're all about valuing the same principles that we cherish in crisis de-escalation. Mm-hmm. We're interested in moving the opposite way from anger, aggression, to agreement, collaboration. They were pretty close to a deal. And then... The talk show host and TV network was sharing with this commercial negotiation celebrity how they wanted the content to be to sell, which would be a lot of drama, discord. The negotiator wanted nothing to do with it after that. The negotiator did not want to fuel the thing that sells in the free market. The negotiator wanted to speak truth. Mm-hmm. And a deal could not culminate. Didn't mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. How, how, many, how many people would subscribe to a news outlet if all the news outlet did was describe all the things that are happening right in our world? Who would go to that? Things that were not arousing of the limbic system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see where you're going with this. I see yeah. where you're going with this. So all of that to say, we're in a tough time right now because the energy is on cycling emotional arousal and brainstem response as much as possible. That's what sells. It's the attention economy. 
and I don't see enough effort, education, push. There's a lot. I don't. I don't think there's enough that is framing that as dangerous. My sense of it is that we're in dangerous territory. I don't know about you, but I think we are, and I desperately don't want us to be there. I'm not saying there's no optimism or no hope. No, no, I I don't feel bleak about what you just said. I <laughs> I'm interested, I guess, in this this dichotomy of what happens versus what sells. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and. I'm, I'm trying to think of what to say that won't lead us down a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole. <laughs> well, don't because we're, we're, we're getting near the end of our time anyway, yeah, but I, yeah, I, we have maybe 20 minutes, but um, thank you for the compliment. First of all, Oh, I am, I am delighted that my way of being in the world could have contributed to us furthering our friendship. Yeah. And furthering mutual understanding. Yeah. Um, more than anything, because I really respect you and I love working with you and I love talking to you. And it just would have sucked if we were enemies. Although I think we'd be great enemies. Yeah, we to would. To be sure. It'd be like <laughs> jo- Joker and Batman. And then we could debate on who's Joker, who's oh, Batman. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm definitely not Batman. <laughs> God, I definitely don't want to be Joker. Um, there's a way of capturing this idea of what sells as what gets you the response you want. I know that you need me to be regulated sometimes to hear me. Let's just say that. You and most people in the world are more capable of being in a space of curiosity and understanding when the person in front of you is approaching a perspective from a non-activated point of view, from Uh something that encompasses reason and regulation and so on. So in that way, regulation does sell. It gets people more willing to actually listen to what you're saying, to consider it deeply. And then there's the sense of what sells in a dramatic sense. Do I get anything good out of opening my window to listen to the neighbors argue? Does that serve me? Does it feel good? No, but I'm fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. I my nervous system wants to get away from it, but I can't deny that it's interesting. There's something fascinating about things that are contentious, like the dramatic daytime TV. You know, so there's that it sells in that it gets an audience. But there's a definite difference between attaining an audience and nurturing connection. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where the intersection is between those two. I think that would be a difficult, uh, you know, moral decision for anyone to make. Like, do I sacrifice my values to present myself in this way that will get me an audience in hopes that once I have that audience, I can help change the way they think or feel or believe? Or do I hold true to this way of being in the world as much as I possibly can, even though it might make people not very interested in me. And I think there's a really complex interplay. Between those two states. Between those two. And I, you don't see me with other people very much, Andy. You see me around you and you see me around people that you know, who you work with, who are your friends, who are your colleagues, who 
by and large, interact somewhat similarly really often. And I guarantee you that I would show up very differently to you if you were to observe me interacting with other people. Now I'm going to stalk you because now please, I'm curious. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I, and that, yeah. But I guess my point is like, I understand that you value a certain way of communication and I'm good at that and I can offer it to you. And I also just want to name the idea that not exactly that I hold value in dysregulation, but if there is an emotional response to something, I think that is significant. And, and shouldn't necessarily be dismissed out of turn, like isn't necessarily something that I believe the world at large should move away from. And you ended, you know, with the things you just said with talking about shadow work. And I think for both of our perspective, it still ends there is that that question of what am I doing with this emotional response that I have? What am I doing with it? Am I examining right. it? Am I understanding where it comes from? Yes. Am I challenging it? And there's a quote by Carl Jung, who we already mentioned. He says, in the intensity of the emotional turbulence itself lies the value and the energy to remedy the problem. Mm. Um, the intensity of the emotional turbulence itself lies the value and the energy to remedy the problem. And I don't want anyone in our audience to think that I want us to move to a post-emotional society. I don't, I don't think I'm not. That's not coming through to okay. me. I, I just want to make yeah. it clear. Yeah. I think emotions are awesome. I think if you are triggered by something that is deeply important i think you should listen to that i think you should hear that there's so much research that ties this idea that all of our what beliefs we would identify as political are tied deeply into our right brain emotional core it is natural for us to have an emotional response to those things is everything let, that's natural good fuck no no but let's get our <laughs> definition straight when i talk about feeling triggered being triggered contemplates, in my view, within the common parlance of crisis de-escalation, less capability to be organized and have diversity of thought because mm -hmm. an experience, a core experience of threat to something has occurred mm -hmm. based on the suddenness and speed of the trigger. Mm -hmm. So I can feel passionate and still be fully in my uh, safe state, as Dr. Porges would say in polyvagal theory, where I have full diversity of thought and expression because I'm, I'm not in what he would describe as a fight-flight mobilization state. But if the trigger assails my sense of existence in terms of shame, abandonment, powerlessness, that's what I mean by triggered. So I, I, we are more in agreement than, than you think. I think um, we are in agreement. Uh, yeah. So, Relatively. you know, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to define, is it possible for someone's emotional presentation, which might be loud and accusatory and derogatory and laden with profanity? Can I sit there and stay in my evolved brain? 
to provide a response. Mm-hmm. And this is where that regulation of the responder definitely comes in. Yes. Um, yes. Even if I'm not, you know, flying off the rails with activation, there are still, you know, those tiny moments of no longer am I in rest and digest. Like I am a little bit activated in this moment. And now I'm responding from some small place of fear. And I, my hope would be that anyone who knows me and cares about me would just not take that personally. Right. So it's, it's nice when one person is right. regulated in that scenario to be able to look at me and say, hey, love, I see that you're feeling a little anxious right now. Like to, to just hold that as my own, my responsibility, something yeah. that's coming from within me that I'm not going to be destroyed in that moment um, and that they're still capable of hearing me and caring about me regardless of my presentation. It would be lovely if people felt safer. <laughs> and I think even just for the, the simple fact of even if you possess whatever viewpoint you possess about how the world should or shouldn't change, you will be more capable of enacting that change when you have some sense of inner peace and safety. Yeah. It will just plain old work better for you. And I think there are plenty of reasons in the society that someone might feel genuinely unsafe, either physically or psychologically. And I don't want to discount the reality of that experience. Because I think the world is a fucked up and cruel place very frequently. Mm. And I have a lot of empathy for the people that want it to be different. I support them. I wonder if they want it to be different very often, though, because they just want to feel safe. And I, their insistence probably. that the world has... <laughs> well, here's my point. Yeah. The insistence that the world has to change in order for me to feel safe is, I think one of the fundamental reasons we're having so much difficulty in our world right now. There seems to be tremendous emphasis on everybody changing the world and external circumstances in order to feel okay. And that seems to be a dysfunctional cycle of activity for many, many people when the far more ain't broke, don't fix it evidence would suggest if we apply some effort to ancient immutable truths some work on regulating my affect and attitude and arousal level can assist me in navigating a world that needs change maybe i can affect more change that way mm-hmm. and that that's an ain't broke don't fix it thing for me and that <laughs> and that's and that's anchored in you know in stoicism and a tremendous amount of religious tradition and and for me that's what i'm passionate about you know and and i'm and i'm not and it's not like there's nothing going on where i'm not at work to try to change things in the world i mean mm-hmm. i i am but i'm not abdicating this priority mm-hmm. that i'm keeping myself and care for my well-being maintained as a function of of getting that done Absolutely. At least while I'm and, here. And I think that's the the space at which we have the deepest agreement of is that this is a practice of caring for yourself and your well-being at its core. Yeah. At its absolute deepest. And I'm reminded of like some ridiculous article 
that might have been a parody. So don't quote me on this, dear audience. Um, how they started these little um, meditation spaces in the Amazon warehouse for the Amazon workers so that people could be more peaceful and thusly more productive, which is so hilarious to me. I think that's a, I think that's a fear that people hold about some ideas of self-regulation, a, a misinterpretation of the practice in that, oh yes, you should regulate so you can function more effectively in a damaged world or meet someone else's goals or causes more effectively that if you learn to self-regulate you're going to be shed of all your impulses to change the things you believe you need to change about the world and people do offer those practices for those reasons meditate so you become more comfortable with the world around you and that is not what i want that is not the approach that i would want to have i think that if you are engaging in a self-regulation practice that is at its core for you and i think there is a level of comfort of safety that one needs to attain in order to be able to do anything else like your self-regulation is a practice for you so that you can live a better life in this moment not to say this is the best life that i can possibly live with the circumstances around me not to say that nothing can ever change and that nothing can ever be better and i must learn to accept it as it is but because first, I need the serenity. Without the serenity, I won't have the courage to change the things I can change. Without serenity, I don't have the ability to accept what I can't. Without serenity, I don't have the wisdom to know the difference. Serenity is just the precursor to any of those three things, not the end path that will lead you to accepting all evils around you. Yeah, I, I think you've described something that a lot of people who are serving lifetime sentences Oof. would would Oof. say. I think you I think if you if you talk to people that have been in cap- captivity and were able to be, you know, if it's our armed service members and you know our our friend James Sporletter from from Jumpstart Mastery, mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. his career for some time was. Um, bringing people back from captivity. And it'd be interesting to to discuss with people who were in captivity how they managed, how they did it, how they found peace in the midst of completely unjust, unfair circumstances and treatment. And um, lessons to be learned from that. In fact, James was just saying last night, one of the universal truths that he came to recognize, a human quality, Whenever debriefing someone brought back from captivity, at the end of the debriefing, the armed services member would say, so how did I do? Mm. What's the evaluation? There was a self-appraisal request in there. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, did I, did I do it right? Did I, did I, did I do my duty right? Did I, did I dishonor myself or, or my country? That there is concern, natural concern for how they navigated those things. He might be a great guest to talk about that uh, for the future. The the whole experience of the snakes in the garden in circumstances beyond our control, like capture, like being imprisoned, both you know here and abroad, uh, in the course of your duty. 
you didn't commit a crime as far as your country was concerned, but you committed a crime as far as the destination country was concerned. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you live in, under those circumstances and be regulated? Ah, ah. Got to be people in those settings that are aroused, screaming. This is unjust. They're opining. No one cares. So now what? <laughs> you know, they're not going to affect change in in the POW camp. They're not going to affect change in the 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 prison in a foreign country. How are you going to get through that? Where's the serenity to be found? Interesting analysis, I think, that can be had there. Yeah, that's a... It's a heavy, heavy train, heavy, heavy way to take that. Most definitely. One does not have the capacity to affect much change when one is stripped of a good deal of one's autonomy and control. Like all you are left with is yourself. Um, Mandela, another perfect example. Someone who had to find serenity in their own imprisonment and then yeah. and then share those truths in that that graceful way that he could yeah i would hope that if you're in that circumstance you have a way to connect with the outside world and the people who are more capable of making change you know prisoners go on hunger strikes prisoners write letters um prisoners have riots prisoners escape there are changes to be made um i know i I, it's, it's worth saying um the fact that you said people in captivity uh, graded me. I just, I kept thinking about zoos. Oh, that's interesting. People in captivity. Oh, I hate that. That makes me yeah. bristle. That well, phrase. that goes on. I mean, that that's what, that was James's world. And there aren't totally, many people I... that do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's, uh, you know, there there isn't a, 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 a LinkedIn or a Glassdoor invitation for those positions. I mean, but there, those positions exist. Yeah. And- no, I mean, one of my biggest challenges that I've ever experienced is when I worked in an inpatient facility. It was involuntary and people could not leave when they wanted. And yep. I had the badge and I had the keys. And for that moment in time, I was the man. And I did not like to be the man. Yeah. Because it, it, it and it, forced me to really reframe my allegiance to a system, my belief in what was working and what wasn't, what was changeable and what wasn't changeable. Because at any time, I could have let all those people out of there. I could have. Anyone could have. Well, some. You would have been stopped, but you might have let some out. We have never had a foot race, and I tell you, I'm biased. (laughs) I'm biased. (laughs) And I don't say this to like inspire revolt necessarily, but but perspectives, what can and can't be changed isn't an inalienable truth. It's a matter of individual and collective perspectives. We all agree when we're driving down the road that that line is there and it keeps us from crossing the boundary into the other driver's lane. Yeah, but I want to opine that I should be able to drive in whatever manner, non-linear, that I want. And that and, is better, Lev. And I want to validate that you can. <laughs> you can. This is a can versus should scenario. You can enter the other lane where the other cars are driving at you. And in fact, yesterday as I was driving to work, someone did enter my lane where I was driving. Good for them. Good for them. Did you feel unsafe when it happened? I had a sense of a lack of safety. Yes. Okay. I did. But yeah, did, did the can versus should. 
right? The line in the road is shamanism and it's fake, but it benefits us all. We can generally agree that it's good to go with the flow of traffic. And well, that's an ain't broke, don't fix it thing. Things yeah, that run in parallel go. lines don't cross. Yeah, you know what I mean? That the are supposed to. principles of physics. There's probably someone out there. I love our difference. <laughs> I love our sameness. I love you. Love this you has too, been a Andy. delightful, you know, uh, near two hour period. And uh, I love the snakes that we visit with in our garden together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I hope that our approach to raising consciousness and, and sense making and is stimulating to our listeners. We're getting a lot of great feedback from our growing listenership. We understand that that the topics that we engage are complex and and that we don't arrive at uh, simple, convenient answers to all of these questions. But I think I think there is nobility in raising curiosity and for people to find their own answers. And I feel so grateful to be on that journey with you and with our listeners, Lev. So thank you. Thank you, Andy. Maybe our next episode will be from uh, the rooms of AA or space. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring a mic in there and see if we get kicked out. Yeah. And then we can opine and say we need to be here as we're being escorted out the, the room door. I, I would love that. Let's go we'll, do it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's go. Let's go engage in some insignificant civil disobedience. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Andy. This is Love, and you've been listening to Snakes in the Garden podcast. If you have questions or feedback for myself or for Andy, you can email us at snakesinthegardenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>